Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. Later in the pod, Tommy's interview with Nobel Peace Prize nominee Amanda Wendt, who's behind a new effort to train young people to build social movements. We've got a lot of news to talk about first, from the resignation of Donald Trump's Secretary of Homeland Security and the Republican strategy to court Jewish voters, to Nancy Pelosi's strategy for keeping the House, and the ever-expanding 2020 field. Uh, quick programming note, we'll be out on the road again this week, so our Thursday night show in Boston will be released as a pod on Friday, and our Sunday night show in New Hampshire will be released as next Monday's pod. Uh, also a reminder that we dropped a bonus episode right before the weekend started. Tommy talked with Julian Castro about his presidential campaign on Friday right here in Los Angeles, and that entire interview is available now. You can also watch it at youtube.com slash media. Wow. Smash that subscribe button. Wow, you can, you can see it too. You can listen to Tommy. You can watch Tommy. Radio on TV. It's great. Um, All right. Let's get to the news. During a meeting at the White House Sunday evening, Donald Trump asked for and then accepted the resignation of Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. As the great Dara Lind wrote over at Vox, Nielsen has arguably been the most aggressive secretary in the department's short history in cracking down on immigration, with her legacy likely to be defined by the zero-tolerance prosecution policy of late spring and early summer 2018 that resulted in the separation of thousands of families at the U.S.-Mexico border. None of it appears to have been enough for Donald Trump. Uh, So Nielsen's resignation came shortly after Trump decided to withdraw his nominee to run ICE because Stephen Miller and others wanted to go in a, quote, tougher direction. Uh, Replacing Nielsen on an acting basis will be Kevin McAleenan, who currently runs Customs and Border Protection. Trump's cabinet is now operating without permanent secretaries in charge of Homeland Security, Interior, and Defense. And an acting chief of staff. And an acting chief of staff. Which is kind of the funniest one, because Trump could make Mulvaney permanent chief of staff today. He just doesn't do it because he wants him to feel small. That's right. There's no, I was actually wondering about that because it's the only one where because he doesn't need to actually get confirmation, he could just do it. Are there any, I wonder if there are legal implications because he also is running OMB. He has Mulvaney running three quarters of his government Mm -hmm. at any given moment. I mean, there's, you don't have a lot of choice these days in the Trump White House if you're, uh, if you're looking for staffers. There's not that many people there. There's uh, tumbleweeds in the hallways. Mick you know? or Jared. It's a, I mean, <laughs> I, it really yeah, it's, Mick, it's Mick, Jared, Ivanka, Stephen Miller, oh, and then a bunch of random people who they just found. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Steve Bannon's uh, empty Chinese food containers still, still lying around. A <laughs> couple Pepe memes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, guys, what do we know about why Trump fired Nielsen and what he's looking for in his next Homeland Security Secretary? The reports are that she wasn't mean enough, John. The woman who uh, oversaw the family separation policy that ripped kids away from their parents and separated them for months at a time doing permanent damage to these children was not mean enough for Donald Trump, according to background quotes in everything you read. And it also seems like in recent weeks, Donald Trump 
has said, uh, NBC's first reported this, that he wants to reinstate mm-hmm. the family separation policy, and she resisted that. Now, it's not really up to Donald Trump to reinstate it or her to resist it. Um, the reason it ended is because, one, he signed an executive order ending it, <laughs> and two, the court stepped in and said yeah. he couldn't do it. Right. So it does seem like, I mean, you know, we always focus on personalities, and we can talk about Nielsen all we want, but this is more of... Donald Trump is facing an intractable policy problem that he cannot fix, and right. the legal problem that he cannot fix. Yeah, getting rid of her, saying he's going to shut the border, saying he's going to reinstate family separation, <laughs> it's um, it's what he's frustrated with is that his cabinet secretaries aren't magical. They're not magical cruelty beasts who can, like, <laughs> use cruelty to implement his vision. I mean, you know, Dan uh, tweeted about this over the weekend, but there was a tweet that I by uh, one Donald J. Trump that captures his attitude about immigration, which is, uh, I'm doing such a good job at the border. Everything at the border is really good. Also, it's a total catastrophe. It's an emergency. They're coming droves, and we need to shut the border. And so he's trapped in this place where it's a signature issue. He's been president for, uh, he'll have, you know, he's running for re-election. This is the signature issue of his presidency. Uh, it's not a success, right? He's, the cruelty has not redounded to policy benefits that he was hoping would happen. And it's clear he doesn't know what to do. So he's firing people. He's yelling. He's calling for crazy things. He's trying to, he likes the attention on the issue, but he's clearly angry about about uh, what's been happening, and I don't think he has an answer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is the uh, I alone can fix it presidency. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the, the coming to fruition here, right? Like, you, Trump promised that he could fix everything. He thinks he can fix everything. He thinks he can just fire people and get his way all the time. And he has never realized and never learned that to solve a problem as complicated as immigration. And look, there is an influx of asylum seekers at the border right now. And, you know, any president, whether it's and and Donald Trump's policies helped fuel that uh, influx of asylum seekers. But any president, Democrat or Republican, would be dealing with uh, a lot of asylum seekers right now and have to figure out, well, what do I do about that? Um, Most presidents would learn that you have to work within the bureaucracy. You have to work with Congress. Maybe you need some support from the other party. Maybe, you know, like maybe you need to have lawyers telling you what's the most legal, you know. You have to accept that it's complicated. It's hard. Right. And that there are uh, reasons to. Uh, not be so strident because even if you have a view about how the immigration system could work, it's going to take time to get there. There are, there are just complications to governing he's never shown any interest in on top of being a racist who's pursuing uh, you know, nativist, nationalist, revanchist policies in order to rile up his base. It, it's also clear that he just doesn't, <clears throat> he doesn't understand immigration policy in fundamentally. any way. Fundamentally. Fundamentally, in any way, shape, or form, despite it being the thing that he focuses on the most. Like, he referred to the Flores court settlement, which bars the federal government from detaining minors for more than 20 days and blamed it on Judge Flores, whoever <laughs> you may be, end quote. Uh, no, it was a, a little girl with the last name Flores uh. that led to this agreement, and I believe in the 80s. And yeah, the years ago. Be in, in like 97. Um, he doesn't seem to understand, or at least he doesn't care, that building a wall doesn't stop people from seeking asylum. Uh, and in fact, so like, what, what do we do about it? We're stuck in this place where he says and does the same things over and over and over again in immigration policy, and he just gets increasingly... Craven sounding, talking about doing away with asylum entirely, talking about closing down the border to Mexico, talking about eliminating all aid for Latin American or Central American countries. And the press covers it because it's crazy and new and like completely uh, counterproductive. But I I don't know what else to do. We're stuck in this cycle. And and it is alarming because it seems like um, even since the midterms, 
he uh, he has sort of attacked the rule of law even more yeah. than he has. Or, you know, he's as we've all, as you said many times, love it. He's the raptor tens- testing the fence here. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he's looking for is another Homeland Security Secretary and other personnel who will help him essentially break the law. <laughs> yeah. Because because he's now stuck. And he, he also said the other day, what we need to do is get rid of the judges. He, and he's just it's just like a, it's authoritarian riffing like it, he hasn't thought very deeply he has no discipline right there's no plan here i mean it is i think part of the reason why it's important that the media does cover what he says about immigration is it's actually one of the few places where he's followed through on some of his more outlandish promises right the zero tolerance policy resulting in family separation that began as this kind of frenetic off the cuff riffing and then all of a sudden it's policy you know but usually he's had to step back from those because right. of the courts. And including say, this one, including I, this one. I, and I don't blame them for covering when covering him when he says all these outlandish things, but it does uh, reinforce this notion that there is a massive, like, uh, unprecedented crisis at the border, which just simply isn't true. There's a huge problem at the border. There's a, there's a, a growing number of uh, people coming up from Central America and seeking asylum, and the, the system is being stressed to the point of breaking. But he's doing things to make that situation worse, not better. I also think, I think there is a legitimately a humanitarian crisis at the border Absolutely. right now. Um, because, you know, I think we've had triple the number of asylum seekers this month that we have last month. And they've been metering them, so they're not hearing their cases, so they're all stuck in camps in, in Mexico. Well, that's the issue. And, and it, so it's a humanitarian crisis. It is not a national security crisis, which is how the administration right. is talking about it. These are not people who are criminals. These are not people who are coming to our, you know, to our country and causing crime. These are mostly women and children and families who are seeking asylum. And what has happened is there is this huge backlog of cases right now um, while they're seeking asylum about whether their asylum application will be processed. We don't have enough judges. There's a backlog of cases. And Trump this whole time is focusing on fucking building a wall, which will do nothing about this. He has (laughs) – some of my friends said, like, he has – only repaired some miles of fencing since coming to office. He has built zero miles of new fencing. <laughs> well, this is the thing that's so strange, right? I, I, I imagine, I mean, this is partly why he's sort of raging about this, is that he's trapped here because on the one hand, he does, I think correctly, see this as one of the few things he can successfully talk about with his base. And on the other hand, he's not a candidate. He's not a candidate. He's the president, right? So he has a record here. So I think a lot of this venting at Nielsen, venting at the fact that these people weren't tough enough, is looking for someone to be to be able to run against, basically, to say, like, this is what has prevented me from actually implementing my vision. And I think it comes back to, I think it's it's worth looking at what Nielsen represents, because I think it's important that she's leaving, and it's important that we're having this conversation about her legacy, because she is what happens when you try to, like, put a layer of seriousness, a layer of adulthood, like icing on this Trump cake of <clears throat> sort of bigotry and chaos and frenetic, you, you know. You think she's the icing? I think she's the, <laughs> I think icing is the wrong word. I, I, <laughs> I mean that she's like, she is, is she some, pretty horrible. Of course she's horrible. What I'm saying is she tried to do what Trump wanted to do while looking like a traditional serious cabinet secretary. I see. I don't agree with that. She fucking went to the press briefing room and lied like crazy. Like yeah. that's not serious. That's just being a, that's just being a, a polished looking liar. But that's, that's what I she mean. Is. She is a poli- She is a yeah, polished present- representative of Trumpism. Presenting that's what she's trying well, to do. But presenting well is a very different thing, in my opinion, than like acting like an adult in the room and trying to calm his worst instincts, which she never ever did. Well, that's the, that's what they're claiming, right? That's what they claim. That's behind what the they scenes. want to spin it. I as. mean, we've had so many conversations about personnel in this White House, right? And I, and I think what we've learned is some of these people resist him for a time. Most don't. Some people resist him sometimes, and then. 
end up giving in to him anyway, right? But that's and what I mean. Really, I mean. The personalities in this administration, whether it's a Gary, what the fuck was his name? Cone. Gary Cone. <laughs> wow. Whether it was a Gary Cone or a John Kelly or a Kirsten Nielsen or a Stephen Miller, like whether they're with him all the time, with him sometimes, not with him sometimes, he gets his way in the end because he's bulldozing people left and right. He's the president. But he's that's bulldozing the point. norms. He's trying to break the law. He's doing all the shit. You know? That's the point. She thought she could come in and be respectable, you know, be a, a be a serious Republican inside the Trump administration. It turns out that's impossible. You become you you become the representative of what requires lies in order to execute, and you leave tarnished by Trump and having succeeded in 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 in, in and having failed to do anything to mitigate his worst impulses. I think what we have to worry about now is um, you know so McAleenan uh, uh, reportedly has said that um, when they're talking about bringing back family separation that uh, he might present families with a binary option, which is either you can be separated from your children or you can all go into detention together indefinitely. And they're, they're that, contemplating this policy. That's Again, illegal right. per the Flores uh, agreement, which says you cannot hold kids for longer than 20 days. So I guess we're reaching another breaking point where we're going to have to decide, maybe Republicans in the Senate will have to decide if we're going to just allow the Trump administration to brazenly break the law. Maybe a court will jump in right. and stop them from doing this. But we saw this with the Magnitsky sanctions about Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, they were required under law to present their findings to Congress, and they said, nope, not going to do it, yeah. and no one said anything. And again, we should remember that back when uh, Republicans controlled the House and the Senate, uh, Donald Trump had a chance to pass some kind of immigration policy where he got more border security, maybe even some money for his wall. Yep. Um, you a know, lot of money for his wall. A lot of money for his wall, right? Um, you know, help DACA fix. recipients and, and DREAMers. And even, you know, ended uh, family migration, Paul, or, or Five times the amount of money well, for what he shut the government down over for border security, right? There was $25 billion was on the table. Right. He shut the government down over $5 billion. He's turned down $25 billion. Yeah. His immigra- and- I mean, from whether you're looking at it from the right or the left, his immigration policy has been a failure, an abject failure. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at what's happening right now, right? All of this, you know, you step back and like all this asylum conversation, shutting down the border, the judges trying to blame, say, you know, trying to foment in front of a fucking group of American Jews that the country's full saying the asylum seekers are faking and saying it's all about trying to ferret out the share of asylum seekers who might not deserve asylum. That is the primary focus of the Donald Trump administration at the border. Finding the group of asylum well, not seekers. Finding, trying to let it trying to convince everyone that that small group that doesn't deserve is asylum threat. is everyone. Is everyone is, is everyone. everyone. That's but what he's trying to say. Of course it's everyone. But even mm-hmm. but even just the idea that like even if you accept that a share of the asylum seekers don't deserve asylum, this is not a crisis. It's not a national security crisis. It's not a national security threat. It's not worthy of an endless like debate over and over and over again. It's not the most important issue issue facing the country. It's not the most important issue at the border. But it's going to be the issue in the fucking 2020 election because he's going to make it the issue every day. Um, So as you mentioned, Lovett, we did hear some of the president's xenophobic rage over immigration during a speech to the Republican Jewish coalition in Las Vegas on Saturday, where he said that our current asylum system is a, quote, scam and that families and children seeking asylum should turn back because the United States is full. Uh, First of all, is the Republican Jewish coalition not an odd place to declare that the United States will no longer provide refuge to groups of people fleeing violence and persecution? Uh, you know, you'd like, like to what? think it wouldn't be. You'd like to think it wouldn't be. But I thought the thing that, the thing that was most chilling is the fact that him saying America's full, that they're faking it, works in front of this audience now. And it's like, come on, people. Yeah. Shame on you. Yeah, I mean, Trump telling a group of, of Jewish voters that America's full it, to, to a room that included an audience 
with Holocaust survivors in it is one of the most historically ignorant, insulting things you could ever imagine him saying to that audience. But he did. I can't imagine the Holocaust survivors in that audience hearing that, uh, it, especially it, with America's history of there's there you know there was a time when we turned back we, Holocaust survivors. Entire boats full of individuals who later died in <laughs> concentration camps. I mean, we, we drastically restricted uh, immigration quotas and enforcement, uh, and, and made it almost impossible to immigrate to the United States in the 30s and 40s or 20s, 30s. Uh, so Trump also made an appeal to Jewish Republicans in his speech by saying that the Democrats are pushing an extreme anti-Semitic agenda, quote, uh, and attacking Representative Ilan Omar just a few days after federal agents arrested a Trump supporter who threatened to, quote, put a bullet in her head. And to show the audience what a good friend he is to American Jews, Trump referred to Benjamin Netanyahu as, quote, your prime minister and said the Democrats could, quote, leave Israel out there all by yourselves. Uh, in response, the Anti-Defamation League and the American Jewish Committee both criticized the president's statement for, quote, feeding bigotry and, quote, leading people to believe that Jews aren't loyal Americans. Guys, do you think all the Republicans and D.C. pundits who accused Ilhan Omar of feeding the dual loyalty trope are uh, busy writing their takes about Trump today? I think those op-eds are getting, uh, getting it's, printed. <laughs> it's so frustrating. You know, look, he has done... He, some of the most, you know, he's, he's bought into anti-Semitic tropes in front of Jewish audiences again and again and again. That is what he does. He thinks it's <clears throat> charming. And if you listen to the way the crowd reacts, sometimes the crowd yeah, finds it charming, too. And it's very frustrating because it's a uh, they don't <laughs> it's I think the biggest reminder of it is that that this is a bad faith attack on Democrats, obviously. And it's just a reminder that he can go in front of these crowds and use these tropes himself uh, while attacking Democrats for being anti-Semitic in, yeah. the, in the next breath. While right-wing anti-Semitism is on the rise. I mean, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't write down a more uh, clear-cut example of accusing someone of dual loyalty than telling them you're prime minister. <laughs> so it's right. it, but in, you know, in 2015, he told the same group, you're not going to support me even though you know I'm the best thing that could ever happen to Israel because I don't want your money. You don't want to give me money. You want to control your own politician. He said that to them. That is the most anti-Semitic thing I've ever heard. And the reason that doesn't get replayed on Fox News and Breitbart and Loops is because Trump's a Republican because Ilhan Omar is an African-American Muslim who wears a hijab. That is the reason they play her shit over and over and over again, her comments. Now, there are reasonable people who could hear those comments and think, that's offensive, that's unfair, I don't like that. I completely respect them for feeling that way. And certainly, certainly, she received near universal condemnation. But what Trump does and says is worse. And we're not even talking about uh, all the literal Nazis who love him. Barely a blip, these comments. I, and, you know, it's, it's funny because it's, it's um, you know, Trump does it like... Oh, we're all in on the joke. Yeah. You know, you guys negotiate, I negotiate. You, nego you know, you're, you're rich Jews. You know, Jews, you love your money. Uh, but but it's not a joke to a lot of people who, wa who are watching it. And Donald Trump doesn't just engage in this kind of anti-Semitic rhetoric in front of Jews. He has done it before. He's famously done it in private. It's been reported on many times. Mm -hmm. You go back, look, <laughs> it's a small thing. But when Jon Stewart made fun of Donald Trump, Donald Trump referred to him as John Leibovitz, over and over again. Why? Because it was his Jewish name. And he would put Stuart in question marks and he would call him, use all, I don't even remember them off the top of my head, but he would use all kinds of anti-Semitic words about John Stewart. It is his nature. It's what he's using to appeal to people. And it is shameful for Jewish people to smile and smirk at this kind of fucking rhetoric that America's full, that you're rich Jews who just try to buy your politicians because you think that he's in on the joke. 
there's a lot of people who aren't. It's also important to understand that these are not just bad faith attacks coming from Donald Trump. This isn't just like Trump spouting off. Um, the Republican Jewish Coalition and Sheldon Adelson are reportedly planning a $10 million campaign in 2020 to convince Jewish Americans who traditionally vote overwhelmingly Democratic uh, to vote for Donald Trump, the man who just called the Prime Minister of Israel their leader. And I and I pretty and, and I I can and I don't think it's directed. I think it's going to be directed at Jewish Americans, but I think it's particularly directed at older Jewish Americans. And I and I, you for know, sure. And yeah. if my my personal experience. In my family, what I hear, I, I, I think it's working. I mean, so for a, cer- for a certain subset of older Jews, I think it's working. Yeah, I, I think. Look, I, I don't disagree. I mean, there's there's ten million bucks to reach two percent of the U.S. population, but obviously, if you're trying to swing a couple thousand voters in Florida or Pennsylvania, this matters a lot. That said, like exit polling data since like the '90s uh, has shown that the Jewish voters pretty overwhelmingly go to Democrats. But also, J Street has done a bunch of polling. Because, you know, hawkish Republicans always claim that the Jewish vote is, is could be swung by just talking about Israel. But in fact, when they ask, J Street's pollster asked American Jews, like, what are your top two voting issues? They usually say the economy, healthcare, terrorism, gun violence, about 10 percent or less in these polls say Israel. Uh, also, 80 percent of American Jews support a two-state solution. So it may be the case that this is a a threshold issue for a lot of older Jewish voters, where they think if the Democrat is insufficiently pro-Israel, they then can look to the Republican Party. And that's probably the argument they're trying to make. But just stepping back a bit, the 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 unflinching Republican support for everything Israel does has nothing to do with Jewish voters. It has everything to do with evangelical voters yes. who the the furthest right wing of which think that uh, Israel needs to be con- fully controlled uh, to have the rapture come and that all the Jews will later be converted uh, to Isra- to Christianity or they'll go to hell. Like they're talking to John Hagee and Jerry Falwell Jr. and those crazy creeps far more than they're actually talking to uh, Jewish voters, I believe. Yeah, I, I still want to find the Democratic Jewish voters who are Democratic in every way, but because of Trump's position on Israel are now moving over, as opposed to older Jewish voters who were already sort of Trumpified and then are, thus are more willing to listen to this right. message. I don't, And I don't know the answer, but... You know. I don't think we know either, but I do think it's this kind of thing where it's just this... It's just that it's sowing this little bit of doubt in the minds of a subset of American Jews. Say, like, yeah. hey, you know, you can't trust these Democrats. Maybe you'll stay home. Maybe you'll vote for Trump. Maybe you'll just... Maybe it'll just become a bigger issue for you, but it's just there to kind of just stoke that little bit of fear. Same, that's what the, that's what the Omar yeah. stuff too is. It just leaves a little bit of a mark. I totally agree. I mean, one of my neighbors is a Holocaust survivor, and I went over to her house once. She's incredibly old, but Fox News is on all day, every day, blaring, and she's probably seeing story after story about Ilhan Omar. And also, yes, it works. And also, just one more thing, and we'll get to it. But it's it's also about equating supporting Israel with supporting. Right-wing American politics and supporting right-wing Israel politics, right? right? That that oh, yeah. w- that this I, that's that's like the biggest, that's the most important long-term project that they've been engaged well, in. Well, speaking of that, uh, just days before the elections coming up in Israel this week, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in an interview that he'd start annexing settlements in the West Bank if he's reelected. Uh, Netanyahu, who's the, who's the subject of multiple investigations, is fighting for his political life. Tommy, why is he saying this, and how bad is it? Um, so, just a little context. So, you know. The, 
Bibi called early elections because he thought it would prevent the attorney general in Israel, who he handpicked, who is a total right winger as well, from bringing forward uh, indictments about him on, or bringing, starting the process of indicting him on uh, corruption charges. That did not work. So now he's cut. <laughs> How did we get that? Fuck, William Barr? Well, their legal system <laughs> takes even longer than ours. So it's, it, it's frustrating. So uh, basically, you know, this election is on Tuesday. Uh, and BB is, he does, it's not just that the Likud would win, his party would win outright, like the Democrat or Republican party wins outright. There's like 40 different parties running. And they each, to, to get a seat in the Knesset, you need to reach 3.25% because it's a proportional system. So what he's trying to do is uh, get support from the furthest right wing political parties and to get out Likud members by doing these drastic last minute things. In the 2016 election, the day before the election day or the day of the election day, he released a wildly racist video that said Arab voters were going to the polls in droves because they wanted to take him out. And that was how he inched over the line. And he is attacking get out the vote efforts among non-Jews. And so this is this is very similar. I mean, it's, it's actually in a lot of ways, equivalent to Donald Trump's sort of caravan stuff right before the election. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. same you exact know, thing. Netanyahu's been in power for, for a decade. Days, days before the election, he announces a new right word, right-wing policy on the West Bank. First of all, like, do people, why wouldn't people see through that? But also, the only reason Netanyahu faces a threat right now is that there's been a kind of, a new coalition formed in the center of Israel. But everyone kind of recognizes that Israel has moved to the right. Why? Like, what explains what explains this power that he has? Um, he, I mean, he's been a survivor for a long time. He's had personal corruption charges against him since the very beginning. He's running against a guy named Benny Gantz in a coalition of former Israeli generals who I, I think, frankly— if they win, we will not be close to happy with their politics either. Mm. So, I mean, w- with regard to the the need to annex uh, West Bank settlements, basically every member of the Likud policy has already come out in support of this policy. It's just that no prime minister ever has and Netanyahu ever has. So, Do you think it's a popular policy with the Israeli people? Um, I think it's growing more popular, and it's certainly probably very popular in the Likud party, which is his, you know, the the conservative party and and parties to the right. So what he's trying to do because of their weird system is he needs to forge coalitions with these super far right wing policies, including one that was so racist that they were compared to Nazis, literally, uh, and, and to get out all his people. Because you can have a you can have a scenario where a more moderate party wins more votes than the Likud party. But if they can't form a coalition to form a government, then it falls back to, you know, whoever else can can pull it off. So that that's what his play is here. Now, I mean, the problem with this policy is most people view it as uh, a nail in the coffin of a two-state solution. Yeah, you know, I mean, these are the, the, it's an apartheid state if you, they do that. <laughs> there are there are there's always been an assumption that in a negotiated two-state solution, there are Israeli settlements that are right along the border that would be swapped in terms of territorial swaps, so that they would remain part of Israel. What's happened is the settlement construction has gotten so far into the West Bank that to carve out uh, all of those areas and bring them into Israel, you basically would make it so. You just have these little islands of territory that become the West Bank. There's no contiguous state. And there's lots like of little was, dotted. There's lots of little. Yeah, seems it like that like, was by design, huh? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. And so Israel now faces this existential choice where uh, they can continue to go for a two-state solution, or they can essentially annex the West Bank and have a, a one-state solution. But then, you know, you you will then incorporate 2.8 million Palestinians into Israel, and that question becomes. 
is this now a democratic state? Do they have the right to vote? Uh, And if they don't, it's no longer a democratic state. And presumably one of the obstacles to a prime minister annexing the West Bank was that they'd face international rebuke, including from the United States, but Donald Trump won't do that. That's exactly right. I mean, every other, you know, Bibi may have wanted to do this for a very long time. Obama had to force him to say he supported a two-state solution back in 2009. They know that Trump will not say a damn word because they handed over the Golan Heights and they, they moved the Jerusalem embassy, uh, which, you know, in fairness to Trump, every other president has promised to do and not done. But, um, but yeah, Trump will never question this. Trump will never question this. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. All right, let's talk about the Democrats. In a new, wide-ranging interview with The Washington Post, Speaker Nancy Pelosi predicted that her party will hold on to the House in 2020, saying that she's, quote, going to have our races won by this November. She's such a boss. <laughs> I just love That's a year early, Nancy. <laughs> just, then she's got the next year to just sort of chill out. Yeah, you know? take up meditation. Kick back. Um, uh. Paul Kane of The Post wrote that Pelosi rejected the idea that today's Democrats are further to the left than a decade ago. She said it was just a few high-profile people in Congress and then a few presidentials, um, and has instead charted a course 
of again appealing to moderate suburbanites and some rural voters frustrated frustrated by Trump's reality TV-style presidency. Uh, she doesn't want to focus on impeaching Trump or on far-fetched legislation that has no hope of passing in divided government. This is all from McCain. Um, she promises not to repeat the mistakes leading up to 2010, saying, quote, you cannot let your opponents characterize, mischaracterize what you're about. So what was missing from that election was a strong messaging piece, and that's what we had in this last election in 2018. Uh, what do we think about Pelosi's strategy here? I don't particularly understand the 2010 point, right? Because the other thing... It wasn't had, a, I don't think it was a messaging problem in well, 2010. I think <laughs> even if there is a messaging problem, there's a big difference between running to take power and running to keep power. Uh, so, Especially, by the way, we should just lay out the context. Running to keep power after you have passed a massive government program, the Affordable Care Act, and the economy has not even started recovering from the worst recession since the Great Depression. And we're in this, we're in this. Sort <laughs> that of, was 2010. And we're in this, uh, uh, this, a word I constantly regret using, this liminal space between Obamacare passing. Liminal space. Yeah, between Obamacare passing and being vilified and Obamacare actually becoming something that's a part of people's lives, right? Which it took, happened like yesterday. Yeah, which took, <laughs> which, man, that people took a just, long time. People started liking it in, uh, right before 2018. Yeah. We stood up uh, geocities.healthcare.gov and that didn't work. <laughs> so it was a... It now was people a, love it. Now, so they, now, now they can't get enough of it. <laughs> now they want more. What else do we think about her, her strategy there? Saying, you know, it's moderate suburbanites, you know, rural voters, she's worried about them. I mean, it seems like they're, she's trying to give cover to a lot of moderate Democrats who won in 2018 in districts where impeachment might not be popular, in, in, in districts where some of the more progressive legislation that we've all talked about ad nauseum <laughs> might not be as popular. She's trying to take some slings and arrows for them in advance of them having to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, one thing we have to understand is that Nancy Pelosi's job is different from uh, any of these Democratic presidential candidates. They are trying to put together a coalition, a national coalition, that adds up to 270 electoral votes. Uh, in doing so, we have often said that you need a candidate who can rally and inspire the base of the party, including people who haven't felt like they wanted to vote before, non-voters, and still appeal to sort of these middle-of-the-road, independent swing voters, whatever you want to call them. And that's what, you, that's what we need on the presidential level. On the House level, there are a lot of districts where there's not a lot of base voters yeah. <laughs> and there's not a lot of like trying to get and, and that is and we have to remember and recognize that in 2018 we did not win the house because there was this sort of like liberal surge among the base we won the house because in a lot of these districts um there were a lot of republican voters who decided to vote democrat for the first time and independent voters and that's what's on nancy pelosi's mind and that is a different task than what the presidential candidates have to do I also just think, you know, we've talked about this before, too. There are no really grand conclusions you can draw from 2018 in, in, in the sense of saying this is the way you need to w w run to win a House seat, right? There, are, there were California districts that we won, even with very liberal candidates, but still won by pulling, uh, uh, pulling in independents and pulling in Republicans. There are more liberal districts uh, where people like AOC could mount a campaign that not only helps them win the district, but kind of creates a new benchmark for how far the left can be inside the Democratic Party, and that has value. So, like... You know, there are going to be places where Democrats can run on Medicare for all, can run on, can run, can can call for impeachment, can 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 put a marker down for the Green New Deal, and then there are going to be districts where people have to run a more moderate race. 
that's that's the game. That's okay. Right. That's all. I mean, and and we should say it's not to say that if you are in one of these purple reddish districts, you have to run some moderate centrist campaign. We've made this point a million times, but Katie Porter won a suburban district out here that was very Republican. She's for Medicare for all. She's a protege of Elizabeth Warren. Still won that race. Um, but it's not like there's a lot of Democrats who were in some of these reddish-purple districts who um, won their seats by talking about abolishing ICE. Yeah. I mean, there's also just a lot of jockeying going on. You see it every day on Twitter to define who is a progressive, what progressivism is. A lot of it is involved uh, discussion about Medicare for all or, or a buy-in plan or legislation Pelosi put forward to, to sure up uh, Obamacare in the interim, right? Like, that's a conversation that's happened a lot. It was interesting talking to Julian Castro because he has an immigration policy that is way to the left of anyone else. And that's not seen as the same sort of litmus test. So yeah. it's a question of how will he start to define his policy as the litmus test for what it means to be progressive? Or will he at all? Because like that's how you're going to get to the left of some of these people in this campaign. It's also worth remembering, too, there's this balance that someone like Nancy Pelosi has to strike, right? Because on the one hand, she's setting the agenda, right? Mm-hmm. She's going to decide what it does mean to be progressive in a way that's practical, right? She is going to help set that boundary. At the same time, she's also going to share this kind of like what what does amount to kind of a form of punditry and saying, here's what I believe some candidates have to do. Here's what I believe other candidates have to do. But the thing to remember is what we have seen repeatedly is that Nancy Pelosi is not going to be the obstacle to how far left democratic politics can go. The House version of Obamacare was further to the left than the Senate version of Obamacare. Anything we end up passing, if we are so lucky as to take the Senate, the the bound will be determined by the debates that take place inside of the Senate. Her job is just to retain the House, try to build that majority, right? Well, yeah, and it's also, it's a question of, you know, let's fight about what version of healthcare legislation we pass once we actually have the power to pass it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to fighting about it now, because you can vote for Medicare for all, you can vote for Bernie Sanders' bill, and you know uh, Representative Jayapal's bill in the House right now uh, on single payer, or you could vote for uh, Nancy Pelosi's ACA legislation that would shore up the ACA. Either of those votes right now, they ain't going anywhere after well, they leave the House. Right. <laughs> but in, in notably, uh, Congresswoman Jayapal supports Pelosi's bill to sure up ACA. That's right. Now, the one exception, I think, to what Lovett was saying is uh, that Pelosi is trying to support efforts by the DCCC to prevent people from helping out primary challengers to the Democratic Party. So to the extent she is... She is protecting incumbents. I guess you could argue that that prevents the party from moving to the less. But it's also completely understandable from her point of view to not want to spend money on primaries. It's the kind of thing McConnell would do. We would all, you know, sort of grudgingly admire how cynical and awful he is. Now, I personally think if you want to primary someone in a safe district, go for it. That's yeah, great. That's, but, you know, it's, it's a notable exception. That's where I disagreed with her in, in this interview is her, her decision to support the uh, the DCCC's blacklist. So like you said, so the DCCC is basically saying we will blacklist any firm, any consulting firm that works for anyone who's mounting a primary challenge to a sitting House Democrat. And... Look, I think primaries are healthy for this party. Now, I think, look, it's interesting. Uh, Ro Khanna, who's one of the more liberal members of the House, he uh, seems to have floated a compromise. And he said, well, why don't we say that if you're mounting a, a primary challenge to someone in a safe blue seat, you know, we won't blacklist your consulting firm and you should be able to do whatever you want mount that primary challenge. But you shouldn't mount a primary challenge to someone who's sitting in a reddish purple seat that could flip. And I... I think that's a pretty sensible compromise. Yeah, but look, we have to understand that 
primary challenges within the Democratic Party and House challenges have happened for such a long time, right? Like yeah. uh, Barack Obama ran against Bobby Rush uh, for his first congressional race. You know, that's how Beto O'Rourke won his seat, mounted a primary challenge, right? Like this has happened for a long, long time yeah. now. It's I also fine. don't think this is going to dissuade anyone from running. It is going to create a debate, a debate we're having right now that basically says that a portion of the party's opinion isn't wanted or isn't welcome. It's also going to mean that there's firms that are going to then become primary. Like, I don't even know how this shakes out, but you end up in a situation where you're literally dividing the party between people who work for incumbents and people who work for primary challengers. uh And there's a lot of places where there should be primary challengers because these are very blue districts with – you know, members that have been there for a long time who don't represent the best interests of their district and uh, are far to the right of where the Democratic mainstream has become. Or if you think that they do represent the district, then they make that case to voters. And, and you know, and whoever wins, wins. Right. right? Like, like, why do you want why like they're, do you put they're your trying to mount, scales like that? They're trying to mount a primary challenge to Richard Neal in Massachusetts, you know, because he won't hold a hearing on Medicare for All in the Ways and Means Committee. Now, they're going to hold a hearing for Medicare for All um, in the House. Nancy Pelosi's already promised that. He doesn't want to do so in his committee. He's also the guy that's now going after Trump's tax returns. You could make an argument that he's pretty liberal, but if you say that he's not liberal enough, run the primary challenge. If he's liberal enough, he wins the seat. If not, he doesn't. That's I just also, how it goes. I also think there might just be a practical problem here for the DCCC. If you have a pollster who's working on 10 races for you and they're on calls with your paid media team, your <clears throat> research team, your comms team all the time, then that person is also working uh, on a primary challenger against some of your incumbents, it just creates some weird challenges right, like that a, they're probably getting ahead of. You can have like an inspector general, like you know, running around, <laughs> run, crunching the numbers. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a, it all feels like um, it feels like a lot of work so <laughs> to prevent too. someone from doing some polling and running some ads. Also, it kind of elevates the role that consultants play. Well, this, it's just which, the whole thing which is, is already, too much, which is already way too elevated in people's minds right. because mm-hmm. of all these stories. Right? Like it's actually not as big of a deal. You're going to deny. The consultants don't make the fucking race either way. They just don't. You're going to take away the lifeblood of these campaigns. I, well, you know, everyone everyone thinks like, you know, you hire high-priced consultants and they win your campaign for you. Like, it's just not what happens. Yeah. <laughs> you need a good candidate and a good message. That's the fundamentals. The um, consultant come out there and be like, remember, middle class. <laughs> yeah, no shit, <laughs> that'll, be right? five, that'll be five exactly. grand. Yeah, that exactly. actually happens. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, speaking of all this, our old boss, Barack Obama, was talking to young leaders in Berlin over the weekend, and he said that he worries that sometimes progressives create a circular firing squad because our allies stray from purity on the issues. Is he right to worry? <laughs> I think he, does he, is he on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> does he have a secret no, Twitter which account? Is, which, is, uh, which is good for him. I think he just probably hears, <laughs> hears the fights. He might be right. It might be totally fine that there is a constant roiling uh, conversation about democratic policy ideas that consumes the media narrative the way the fucking Trump show did in 2016. I have no idea. I do yeah. think I do think, look, it drives me crazy personally when I see people running down, for example, the Affordable Care Act, because I think it's the height of privilege to say that Medicare expansion or 20 million people getting health insurance is not somehow significant for those individuals. Right. right. So like I, that's you might think I'm wrong, and that's just fine. But I think it's an absurd argument. Yeah, my my view on this has always been we should absolutely have fierce policy debates over the direction of the party, and everyone should be free to participate in those those debates. Um, But what I start worrying about is challenging each other's motivations right when you pick a specific policy saying that you're you know you're a corporate shill or you're doing this for this reason or that reason like that's when it starts to get bad because that's when um you know we start 
when we when we start telling each other <laughs> that this Democrat is not worthy because um, they're like a little bit to the right on this policy or that policy, uh, you know, that's a problem. You, it's completely fine to say my candidate supports this policy. The other candidate supports this policy. I don't think it goes far enough. And so that's why I'm that's why I'm for my great. Then fight that out. Yeah, it's also I think part but of it, it gets too, much nastier than that on Twitter. Yeah, I mean I think part of it is that so much of our debate around candidates, around politics, around ideology is about what we'll do when we get power. Yeah, that it ends up being an argument about who's who's really going to do what they say going to do. Who can you really count on? Who's really progressive uh, when the evidence, the record you're going on is mostly words, mostly proposals, mm-hmm. mostly. Uh, uh, um, how they how how strongly they talk about certain issues, and I think then when debates, I guess it's like circling fire squads. It's like, well, what's in the chamber? You know, like what what are we firing at each other? And it's like, when when a debate boils down to see, this is why you can't trust this person. See, this is why you shouldn't ever listen to this person. See, this is why you should dis you know disabuse yourself of this entire wing of the party. I think that is when you have crossed a line. Yeah. Also, I'm totally fine with with elections being really contentious. And I think vetting candidates is a good thing. You should dig into their record. We should do it now before that person wins and it happens in the general election. Yeah. Right? Like that should be our operating assumption. I don't care if, it, if it's nasty and contentious. I just think it's an argument that you should think about whether uh, the way you attack someone's motives or uh, criticize them personally might turn someone off from your candidate permanently. Yeah, and that's I- a That's a thing that people should consider. And I'll say I saw people pointing out that, you know, uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton ran quite a contentious race against each other in 2008, maybe more contentious than the Bernie Hillary race in 2016. I think there's a lot of evidence for that. But you know what? All of us on both campaigns, the Obama campaign and the Clinton campaign, will look back at some of those debates and some of those attacks. And we're not super proud of all of it. You know, like that that debate where uh, she's saying you're slumlord Resco and Obama's saying you sat on the corporate board of Walmart. Like, I don't think that was a great moment for either of them. <laughs> and I don't think that was very constructive. And I don't think that helped the helped either of them and helped the, the party at all. Well, part of the problem of those debates at the time was they'd been debating for such a long time. Mm-hmm. Their policy differences were minimal. Yeah, it was right. just it was just the uh, it was the uh, the mandate, the man, the healthcare <laughs> mandate. Where, where, and some where, and some vote on Iran. I think well, there was the whole Iraq war thing. Oh, that well, was the right, big right, one. but that of course, but by, but by but that by then these fights had been litigated so much, and mostly what they had been proposing to do as president aligned so much that they were left with like so little to actually yell at each other about and yeah. so Iraq, Iraq was the big one and then Iraq was in the past so then it was like going forward it was too similar yeah. the two well that was the IRGC designation which Trump that was did the, today that was, I was just thinking Wonderful. about that um, alright let's talk about 2020 over the last few days I think something like 40 additional Democrats <laughs> announced they're running for president. Um, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan announced on Thursday the 45-year-old Ryan, who's been in Congress since 2003, is perhaps best known for running unsuccessfully against Nancy Pelosi for minority leader back in 2016. He pitched himself on The View as, quote, a progressive who knows how to talk to working-class people and get elected in working-class districts. California Congressman Eric Swalwell is announcing his bid on Colbert tonight, Monday night, and he'll be hosting a town hall this week on gun safety with our friend Cameron Caskey, one of the survivors of the shooting last year in Parkland, Florida, because he wants to focus his campaign on gun violence. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett said last week that despite a recent prostate cancer diagnosis, he's committed to running for president once he's healthy. Others still considering a run include former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, Montana Governor Steve Bullock, and (laughs) Stacey Abrams. Um, So outside of Stacey Abrams, who I'm going to put aside because she is fantastic and has a national profile, uh, I've seen a lot of complaining and mocking on Twitter about all of these prospective candidacies. Let's take the other side just 
for uh, shits and giggles here. What's the argument for running if you're one of these candidates? What are they seeing when they look at the political environment and the current field that's telling them, I should do this? It's hard. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, look, look Eric Swalwell is, is an easier example. It seems like he wants to run a campaign that's primarily focused on stopping gun violence. Right. That is admirable. That's sort a, of like the Jay Inslee. It's an interesting approach. But I also think it's an open question for me if that approach where you say I'm the I'm the the climate change candidate like Jay Inslee did is the best way to elevate that issue. I would argue that. Alexander, uh, AOC did a hell of a lot more to elevate the issue of climate change or the people who protested Diane Feinstein's office than Jay Inslee has so far. Now it's early. Maybe that will change. But like, that's my honest take on it. So maybe, I don't know, maybe they're going to bring something to this race that we can't see yet. And so we should by no means rule them out. It's just when you enter this late, it's hard to fundraise. It's hard to get staff. It's hard to meet the thresholds to get into debates. I'm not sure I get the strategy. I don't know. I, like, so if you, if you think about running on an issue, you know, there's two reasons to run on the issue. One is because you want to make the issue central to politics, or two, you want to use the issue as a launching pad for your own legitimate, full-throated presidential race. I, I don't know, in the case of Swalwell or Inslee, uh, what the goal is. But in either case, you know, you look at this field right now, you see better work who is no longer in Congress, who has raised millions of dollars. You see uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who turned... Uh, and I'm, this is not a criticism of him at all, who who turned a few key moments on television where he was thoughtful and interesting and new uh, into enough of a base of support to get on the debate stage. You look at it, that and you say, all right, I have one, one persuasive, powerful moment about the climate. I have one persuasive, powerful moment about gun control in a CNN town hall. Maybe I can get the 65,000 donors. Maybe I get on the debate stage. And, I, and the debate stage is a chance to reach the people that you can't reach when you don't have a national profile. And so maybe a lot of people are saying the debate stage is the threshold. If I make it, I make a shot at it. If I don't, I'm out. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I think I have a few thoughts on this. I mean, I think this all started with it might have started with Barack Obama winning the presidency. Right. He was a state senator who was then a senator for a year and then became president of the United States. It accelerated in a huge fucking way with Donald Trump winning the presidency because he was just we, we know we know this whole story. We don't have to repeat it again. But Donald <laughs> no, Trump is president now. Yeah. Um, so there's <laughs> that. Right? Thank you for skipping. <laughs> yeah, I was going to go previously on America. <laughs> yeah, we, we know what we know. How, we know how that ended. Um, so you see that and then you think, OK, well. You know, anyone can really do this now, right? If, if Donald Trump's president, anyone can do this now. And then you think the way that the media has changed, right? Where you can get all this national attention for a couple viral moments, right? And the way that raising money in the Democratic Party has changed, you used to have to, like, know a bunch of rich donors and sit with them and, and, and suck up to them and then get money that way. Now you can raise a ton of money online. Um, and so they look at all this kind of stuff. And I think you're right, especially it started with Beto in this race, but especially Buttigieg, right, where these people, these are people are congressmen or in Bill de Blasio's case, you know, the largest city in the country. Yeah. And they're saying, like, he is a mayor of a pretty small college town <laughs> and and has held no other elected office. And this guy has raised seven million dollars and is now this sort of 
national candidate mm -hmm. who's really has a chance in the race now, and who benefits from running even if he doesn't become the nominee. Right. That's the more cynical version of this, which is you run for office to get a cabinet uh, appointment or worse, you run to get a book deal. Or if you're Herman Cain, you get a book deal and you get named to the Fed later. Right. Just because you run for president and you raise your profile and you get and I'll tell you now, I don't I'm not making that accusation about the Democrats, but certainly that was the case for most of the Republicans who ran for president. For sure. They did it to make money down the road. I'm not making the exact accusation either. I, I, just, I really hope that's not true because I do not have, um, I, I do not respect as much, I will just say, people who are running who are thinking I'm not going to win, but I'm just running because I want to raise my profile. Like, and I don't, and look, I think like Pete Buttigieg um, is not running because he wants to raise his profile. I think he really wants to do this, you know? But I think if you're, if you're running for president, if you do this, you really have to think that there is a path for you and that you want to run. And maybe all these people do. And I think the reason they do is for all these reasons made up. They're like, all I need is a couple big moments, you know, where I take off. And then if I can just get to that debate stage and show people, you know, what I am and what my message is and what my story is, then there I go. And they're looking yeah. at the field, too, by the way. And they're saying um, we have two front runners, Joe Biden and, and Bernie Sanders, one in the race, one not in the race yet. And they're not like traditionally super strong front front runners like Hillary was in 2015 2016 you know they are they're both polling at like between 25 and 30% you know Biden's support has ticked down a little bit Bernie's has stayed solid um, but they're not so strong and no one else and then after that you've got Kamala Warren Beto and now Buttigieg all sort of in the mix at around 8 to 10% and then a whole bunch of other you're looking at that field and you're like nothing is scaring me away right and i also just they're human beings and um I just think we don't know how loud the applause was in their minds <laughs> in the shower while giving their inaugurals. I think they must be extraordinary speeches <laughs> that these people are giving to themselves. I mean, look, I think Howard Schultz is a good example of someone uh, who yeah. was practicing running for president in his mind for a very, very long time. That's a whole and only discovered and only discovered how hard it was when he started saying words out loud to other human beings. Uh, that's, a Howard other, that's a whole other garbage can of coffee grinds. <laughs> Howard Schultz. <laughs> Who got his candidacy unraveled in one interview with Ali Velshi thinks that he's belongs on the world stage. What a clown. Well, Ali Velshi wasn't who was interviewing him in the shower. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, just to but everyone everyone should run and we'll see what happens. Disclaimer. We have no Disclaimer. idea. Disclaimer. We and honestly, like, I have no fucking idea what's going to happen in this primary. I don't know about you guys, but like every single no, day. I got it locked. I'm pretty <laughs> Every single day I read the news, I'm like, I would be Nothing would surprise me in this primary. Some say chaos is a pit. I think chaos is a ladder, John. <laughs> when we come back, Tommy's interview with Nobel Peace Prize nominee Amanda Wen. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, 
so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. I am honored to have in the Crooked Media HQ, Amanda Wynn. She's the founder and CEO of RISE, a non-governmental civil rights organization. She was the power behind the Sexual Assault Survivors Rights Act, one of 23 bills, two, three bills. Michael Jordan, number of bills to pass unanimously <laughs> through U.S. Congress. She, in 2013, she graduated from Harvard University, where she studied astrophysics and was the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize nominee. Amanda, it's great to see you again. Thank you. Last time I saw you, we met for an hour about how you figured out to do something uh, most elected officials can't do, which is pass laws. <laughs> yeah. But then I buttonholed you for like 30 minutes to talk about something I saw on Cosmos, which was recently taken off Netflix, which is very upsetting. No. Uh, but you were like going to see a spaceship launch yeah. that day. Virgin Galactic. How was it? I mean, it was amazing. All space launches are amazing. Have you been to one? No. I've seen you have TV. to go. It's so we smart have to go. that they put cameras all over them. I mean, Elon mm. Musk putting his Tesla on the spaceship was totally. just brilliant. Yes. But so you're basically, you're on the track to be an astronaut. I want to be. Um, that's my main dream. So yes. this whole like writing civil rights stuff, it's like, I'm trying to do a blueprint so that I can get to space. Okay, cool. <laughs> we'll get to space at the end. Um, so I think if people want to learn even more about the work you're doing at Rise, mm -hmm. um, you did an awesome, awesome crooked conversation with Julissa Arce that gets into a ton of detail. Uh, but there's some new stuff as of this week that I want to cover. So we'll probably do a little less, but let's start uh, there in, in the work Rise does because mm -hmm. it's so foundational to what you're doing. Totally. What's Rise and how are you able to pass more pieces of legislation than like anybody thought possible? Um, by taking our egos and shoving it somewhere. Okay. Um, okay, so Rise is a civil rights nonprofit, and I started it because I needed civil rights, and nobody was going to write it for me. So after my rape at Harvard, I discovered a broken criminal justice system. Um, rape kits in Massachusetts before my law passed were destroyed before the statute of limitations. Uh, there was a huge double standard. So convicted rapists had the right to hold on to it for the duration of their um, That is conviction. outrageous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the other double standard is that other types of class A um, violent felonies like murder, they never have their evidence destroyed, but rape does. Um, and I thought that was unfair. And yeah. so I realized I had a choice. I could accept the injustice or rewrite the law. One of these things is a lot better than the other. So I rewrote it. Um, when I started RISE, it was a team of us, and we sought to pass the Sexual Assault Survivor Bill of Rights through the United States Congress. People thought we were a joke. They were like, look at these 20-something-year-olds. You have no money. You have no power. You have no connections. And then 
we did it. <laughs> um, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, Like, you have this astrophysics background. You're, you get science. You get math. You're organized. Like, how did you apply yeah. <laughs> some of the things you're passionate about to the work you're doing? Because, like, I feel like you kind of hacked the system in a way that a lot of people talk about, but few people really do. Totally. So... For us, data and being data-driven is extremely important. And when we walked into a members of Congress office, we knew every single vote that they've ever done on this, everything they've said, and also their, like, Cook PBI score, right? That's awesome. Um, and it was not only the moral case for why they should do this, um, but also the political case for why anyone should do this. Um, so it came with a lot of strategy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but... When we passed at that time, we became the 21st bill in modern U.S. history to do so unanimously. And the statistic for that is 0.016%. Wow. But the most remarkable thing wasn't that. It was what happened after. So when President Obama signed it in 2016, we heard from over a million people who reached out to say, hey, um, I'm having these issues in my own community, too. And can you help us, me, pen my own civil rights into existence? And so we sought to replicate that success. And I created a theory of organizing called Hopeonomics. I love Hopeonomics. Thank you. Um, it's part game design theory and then part national security theory. Um, and what it does is it gamifies the process of passing a law. And over the past 21 months, we've passed 21 laws amazing. unanimously. We've trained over 200 organizers to do that. Um, and it covers uh, about 40 million people civil rights. That's incredible. It's like it's a truly remarkable accomplishment. Thanks. Um, so this kind of blends into the, your announcement for this week. But like, do you think your theory of the case could be uh, borrowed by someone who is passionate about criminal justice reform or yes. fill in the blank? That's the whole point, right? So so much of politics isn't about facts. It's about how do you talk to irrational human beings mm -hmm. um, about making them believe it's in their best interest, um, not only logically, but um, emotionally as well. Um, and that's exactly what we've done. So we taken now um, the knowledge and resources we've amassed over these 21 laws, and we're taking it to the next step. So we've built America's premier civil rights accelerator, and we yes. call it Rise Justice Labs. So you just a couple of days ago, you launched this project. It's yes. this incubator for people who want to build a movement mm -hmm. around a cause that they care about. So how is Rise Justice Labs going to work? Yeah. So here's how it works. In cities across America, there are... Uh, umbrella organizations that give seed funding to tech entrepreneurs. So when a tech entrepreneur has an idea based on the merit of their idea, they can pitch to VC firms and get seed funding, mentorship, um, and that doesn't exist for civil rights until huh. now. So what we do is we took a social entrepreneurship lens to grassroots organizing. Cool. When an activist or an organizer wants to pass a law, they can apply to us, and if they get accepted, we'll give them seed funding training, access to professional services like lawyers and a community. Um, and essentially, we're covering the opportunity cost of someone starting up a social movement. That is such, that's so important because I've heard you talk about this, but I think you saw this after Parkland mm -hmm. where if a student who survived one of the attacks dared to tweet something about finding mm -hmm. some joy in their day-to-day -day life, yep. they were smacked down. It was yep. like, how dare you uh, enjoy what you're doing? There, there's this sense, I think, that 
activism has to be punitive for the individuals involved. Totally. And that's totally crazy. It's mm-hmm. unfair. Yeah, I don't believe in martyrdom, right? And actually, I'm so glad that you brought them up because we've actually started Rise Justice Labs under the radar for the past eight months. And the first team we're so proud to work with are the survivors, alumni, and friends, other people who work with um, the folks from Parkland, um, the the survivors of uh, Majority Stoneman Douglas High. That's amazing. So like, when I think about how effective you've been and how effective they've been, it's like uh, Transformers coming together and this like, <laughs> giant thing. Like, what are they looking to learn from you and your organization? Yeah. So this group of young people, incredible young people, founded by uh, a young man named Robert Shentrup. So he lost his sister, Carmen Shentrup, in the shooting. Uh, I'll never forget it. So he um, came to me and said, I just want to make sure that politicians, I don't care what party they are, will be able to be safe in voting for gun violence prevention because I just don't want to lose my other sister to gun violence. And that that kind of organizing, that kind of attitude is what it takes. And so over the past eight months, they've been incubated at RISE full time. Um, they've gone through our Hopenomics training um, and they are now in 15 states. Uh, they have met with President Trump in the Oval Office. Wow. Mm-hmm. Good for them. That's yeah. Great. Yeah, it was um, incredible. And with Democratic House leadership. And um, just last month, Robert testified in the Colorado State House for a bill they're supporting called ERPO. Um, and that bill passed, and it's on its way to the governor's desk. That is remarkable. Um, God, the, the antidote to being frustrated with Washington is to mm-hmm. get into states mm-hmm. and see work like that happening. Well, look, this is a time of frustration, of political tribalism, and of waning faith in our democracy. Yes. And I don't think that there's ever been a more vital moment in our history for people to understand that they hold the power. Yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> I am so sick of politicians who just for um, retweets, have these reduced sound bites um, instead of making steadfast policy. And for people who want an alternative to, you know, giving money to candidates, right, there are only 535 seats within Congress. Um, You can run for them. You can also run for local office. um, But also, if you don't want to run or if you lose and you still want to serve in some way, there is a path for you to make change, um, you see, like, if I was a member of Congress, I'd be the most successful one. I've passed 21 laws unanimously. And the only reason I was able to do that is by being outside of that political fray. Right, right. Um, so the other thing I think, the other tension I see a lot, mostly online, because that's where we all live, is, you know, <laughs> what's real activism versus hashtag activism? Ah, right? uh, yeah. So I kind of think it's a false choice, right? Like, marching works, sit-in works, but I imagine if Dr. King had the social media tools we have today, yeah. he would have used those as totally. well, right? So where's the balance? Like, What like creative things have you seen young people do that merge those uh, the history with what we can do today? Well, I think our century's industrial revolution is digital and that the path, you know, the networks of distribution are absolutely social media. If I go to a celebrity who has millions and millions of followers and ask them to tweet about calling in something, those um, members of Congress will be hearing those phone calls, right? Mm. Um, And so hashtag activism along with other forms of organizing are all valid. But at the end of the day, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? And for us at RISE, we, I didn't have the political luxury of a cathartic performance. Like what I mean by that is I needed to work with people from all sorts of walks of life and people I didn't agree with in order to pass laws. Because 
for me, in order for a healthy democracy to function, its citizens need to be able to hash things out. Mm -hmm. And we have, I think, in this moment of extreme, extreme toxic political tribalism, lost that. Yeah. Um, and so for folks who still want to make a change, there is a way and they can go ahead and apply to us at Rise. Yeah. So you, you talk about the tribalism and the way it plays out in the media. I mean, the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, like I, I almost mm. don't even want to, it was so awful, right? Because you had this incredibly, you know, believable, credible, compelling, emotional testimony for Dr. Blasey Ford, followed by a fucking temper tantrum mm. from Lindsey Graham. And that seemed to inspire their base more than Dr. Ford's testimony got Democrats to turn out and, and uh, oppose the nomination. And that like broke my heart. I just couldn't believe we lived in a country where that is how someone would respond to trauma and, and like that. Right. And then more recently, we have a very different debate that with similar tones about Joe Biden and like what is appropriate and, um, you know, <laughs> Whether, you know, whether something falls short of, of sexual assault or uh, misconduct, whether making someone uncomfortable, like how we talk about those sorts of issues in, in the public square. So, like, I guess I'm trying to figure out what's the best outcome we can get from the conversations that we have publicly now uh, about all of these issues. First, I think America and to the world um, as an extent is going through mass public trauma together. For the first time in the news, we're seeing very deeply rooted traumatic things that were stigmatic ones being played out over and over 24 yeah. seven. And that is affecting the way that people are responding, not only um, to politics, but in their everyday lives. The second thing is that regardless of the political spectrum, um, what at least I've observed from the things that have gone on is that it's no longer do you believe survivors. It's if it is if survivors matter. Um, and the whole point that I'm trying to show not only survivors, but everyday people is that not only do you matter, but you have agency, right? We're demystifying the process of passing a law and trying to give people a roadmap because people are just fed up with investing or putting their hopes into politicians that maybe will do some things for them, mm -hmm. right? There's a profit model in politics of people paying a premium to lobbyists and consultants for access to research um, connections, and maybe it'll work out. But for us, there are people on the ground in these communities. Look, it's my deep belief that the people who have the solutions to the world's most pressing problems are the people who live the problem every day. Yeah. And those people should be at the drafting table, too. So why just cut out the middleman, right? Um, do it ourselves. I love it. So if you're listening, say you're at home right now, you're listening to this, you're fired up by your success, you want to get involved, you want to apply to Rise at Justice Labs. How do you do that? And, and what do you want to hear for them if they're going to go from applicant to accepted? Because I imagine yeah. you're going to get a lot of people yeah. trying to be a part of this. Yeah, so folks can go to risenow.us okay. uh, and apply. And what we're looking for are people who are passionate, who have really big ideas about how to change the world, and who have what it takes. And here's what it takes. Somebody who can compromise. Right. One of the final questions, I'll give this away, one of the final questions <laughs> that we always ask any person who applies to RISE is if you were to meet President Trump, what would you say? Oh, good question. Yeah. And if the answer is anything short of respect, they're not accepted. 
Because at the end of the day, we have to compromise. We have to work with people. That's what the democracy and our legislative process demands. Um, and I still have faith in our legislative process. That's why we're being able to you know, pass all these laws. That's amazing. Okay, one space question. <laughs> okay, the path from today for mm-hmm. you to becoming an astronaut. Oh How many gosh. years is that and what do you have to do? Um, so that's a really both um, exciting and complicated question okay. because there are multiple routes. Obviously, um, so I used to work at NASA uh, and uh, that would be my dream um, to be a mission specialist on one of their deep space missions, hopefully to Mars. Cool. Um, yeah, but it's much more likely for me to go to space um, through a, a private space program. Um, and there are a ton of companies who are exploring and making a lot of innovation um, headway into uh, private space. So I am really excited to be able to contribute in both ways. You're bullish on private space? Um, yes, definitely. I've literally seen it with my own eyes. The last time I was here, I headed from you to uh, Virgin Galactic and saw the first woman ever to fly in a commercial space flight into space and come back down. That is so cool. Yeah. Uh, Amanda, it is so inspiring to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, Everyone should apply. Yes. This is such a good idea. Uh, we need to see this replicated all across the country because that's the only way we're going to make some progress. Yeah. No, um, everyone should. No one is powerless and we come together. Get in the game, people. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, of course. Thanks to Amanda Wen for joining us. And uh, we'll see you in Boston. We'll Some see of you, you in Boston. The rest of you will hear us from Boston on Friday morning. Still some tickets for Love oh, or Leaving in Boston on Wednesday. Just come say hi. Snap up those tickets. can start your day off right when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.